Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and morning DJ on KAB Radio, where we play smooth jazz that no one else in the world ever plays. Good old KAB. Yeah, we should have gotten uh, Stevie Wayne as a guest on this episode. (laughs) So we are here at our season finale of our season on the films of 1980. And as we always do in our season finale, we are giving the audience a choice of what we talk about. We presented uh, three choices to the audience, three horror classics from 1980, including Friday the 13th and Maniac. And the one that you all voted for, which is John Carpenter's The Fog, which was kind of what was expected, I guess. Uh, although Friday the 13th, probably a more well-known film, at least as a franchise. But I think The Fog has more goodwill in terms of uh, quality, I would say. It's uh, it's become a cult classic, like 75% of John Carpenter movies. <laughs> yes. Fair. Yeah, you're right. It has It has become a cult classic. A lot of Carpenter movies uh, from the 80s, especially, that maybe didn't do huge box office numbers have become not only cult classics, but I think general horror classics that are acknowledged just in a wider sense as as important horror movies. This one, however, actually did do decently well at the box office, grossing $21.3 million on its $1.1 million budget. And uh, it was a follow-up to John Carpenter's massive hit, Halloween, which is, um, I think at the time was like the highest grossing independent film of all time, just did huge, huge business. So this was when he was kind of riding high on that success and people were really anticipating what is the next horror movie going to be from John Carpenter. So it did bring in audiences, even though this is a very different movie from Halloween, I think. Jason, I don't know if you have you seen Halloween? You know, Josh, uh, this is it's I was going to mention to you like John Carpenter is a total um, not going to say a blind spot because I obviously am aware of him, but I'm I've not ever explored the films of John Carpenter, Josh. All right. Well, I mean, I know you're not a big horror fan, but Halloween, at least, is a complete classic. I think it's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. One of my favorite movies. And it certainly was a huge success, but this is a very different kind of film. And I could imagine that maybe even audiences at the time coming into this film, having loved Halloween, maybe were a little put off by the sort of old fashioned spooky ghost story tone of this movie versus the slasher movie uh, template that they use in Halloween. So maybe audiences were a little thrown by this film, but it was a big success in theaters. It was all uh, not a big success with critics, though, <laughs> even critics who liked Halloween, and which was interesting to me because a lot of times these smaller horror movies don't get a lot of critical acclaim at first, especially from this era when horror in general was not really well regarded by critics. But a lot of critics did like Halloween. It was interesting to me watching like Siskel and Ebert talk about this film, and they gave it two thumbs down and they were not a fan of it. But both of them had really liked Halloween, and they felt like this was a disappointment. And, and sort of a step down from the movie that they had liked. So that seems to have been the general, uh, the general critical consensus on this one. Roger Ebert, in his review, said, the problem is with the fog. 
It must have seemed like an inspired idea to make a horror movie in which clouds of fog would be the menace. But the idea just doesn't work out in The Fog, John Carpenter's first thriller since Halloween. The movie's made with style and energy, but it needs a better villain. And it also needs a slightly more plausible plot. We don't really care about the logic of the plot in horror movies, of course, but there has to be some plausibility, just so we know what the rules are. Carpenter's Fog, which contains the ghosts of murdered sailors, is too unpredictable. A sentient fog may be photogenic, and this is a good-looking movie, but can we identify with it? Is it the kind of villain we love to hate? Not really. And this is a, a point that multiple critics make that I don't really get the criticism here, that the fog needs more personality or something. I was hoping the fog would do a song and dance number at some point in time. Right. I mean, part of the scariness of this is that it's sort of uh, this monolith of uh, mute nothingness that's coming after people. Well, and Josh, we know that uh, dead pirates have never succeeded as movie villains. There hasn't been a huge franchise. (laughs) <laughs> where pirates have had to fight dead pirates or anything like that. But I will agree with him that um, it is not a scary bad guy. And I'm not just saying the fog. I mean, those dead pirates are not scary at all. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, I think the tone here is different from Halloween. It's more like campfire spooky ghost story, the way that it's established at the beginning. And I suppose you're right that the dead pirates maybe are not super scary. I feel like they might be scarier for like a younger audience, even though I'm sure this is rated R. I feel like this is a movie no. that might be good. Is it it's, not? It's rated R. Oh, yeah. Of course, of course it is. Of course it is. Thank you. But I mean, I feel like this is a movie that weirdly would be good for like, like a kid's first horror movie if you're like 11 years old or something like that, because it's it's just spooky enough to kind of jolt you, but it's not full of blood and guts and, you know, multiple murders or anything like that. Unless, of course, uh, that that kid was our producer, Dave, because his first horror movie was probably like Slumber Party Massacre or something like that uh, at age four. Yeah, Dave always being exposed to inappropriate films at a young age. Did you did you see Halloween when you were eight or something like that, Dave? No, but I remember having nightmares for like months after Creepshow, which was around this time. And Creepshow is actually a good comparison for this because I feel like it's that that old kind of EC comics ghost story tone where it's, you know, spooky and and kind of humorous, but not necessarily like viscerally scary. And it also yeah. features Adrian Barbu and uh, Hal Holbrook, like this movie. Yes, and I think Tom Atkins too, maybe was in, or maybe was in a Creep Show two or something. All of them involved in the Creep Show franchise later. Uh, so Vincent Canby in the New York Times had some similar criticisms. He said, having given us a substantial start on a spooky, comfortably old-fashioned ghost story. Mr. Carpenter appears to forget what kind of a movie he wants to make. The Fog is neither a rewarding ghost story, nor is it science fiction, though it borrows freely from both genres, to such an extent that air pollution or H-bomb testing might as easily be blamed for the film's mayhem as the leprous ghosts. Unlike Halloween, which was a model of straightforward terror and carefully controlled suspense, The fog is constructed of random diversions. There are too many storylines which necessitate so much cross-cutting that no one sequence can ever build to a decent climax. The movie looks quite pretty, but prettiness of this sort is beside the point in such a film. Yeah, who said that, Josh? That's Vincent Camby in the New York Times. I had to ask again because normally Vincent Camby and I are diametrically opposed. (laughs) But uh, I kind of agree with everything on that one. Okay. 
Even the 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 sci-fi. I never thought that this seemed like a sci-fi movie in any way. Did that strike you as as as, as that kind of thing? No, I guess that's fair. It's like got that supernatural element, but not sci-fi. But uh, but really, just the idea of like the dilution of the overall products because the lack of character movement development uh, knowledge of these characters that was a big issue for me on this one. Yeah, I mean, I like that it was an ensemble. That it wasn't like Halloween, which just kind of has a small cast and then whittles them down as they all get killed. Um, I like that this was a, a sort of a tapestry of what's going on in the town and the people don't necessarily even all come together. You feel like in this kind of movie, eventually they're all going to team up and discover what's going on. And that that kind of never really quite happens. And I like that they're all dealing with it in different ways. I understand what you're saying, that maybe we don't learn quite enough about each of the characters, but I feel like there was enough there that I cared, you know, you've got Stevie Wayne and her background having come from the big city to buy this little radio station in this small town of Antonio Bay and her relationship with her kid. And you've got Jamie Lee Curtis as the hitchhiker who uh, is uh, sort of trying to find herself and she's hooking up with Tom Atkins. I felt like there was enough character there for me to care. Uh, 100% disagree. You couldn't tell me one thing about the relationship between Stevie Wayne and her son other than that he's her son and there's no dad in the picture. You know? I mean, that's I feel like that's something. And that tells you something about their relationship, that she's struggling to raise him on her own. She has to go work at the radio station. She has to leave him with Mrs. Kobritz. I mean, that's all single mom kind of stuff that. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to broad stroke it and, you know, just kind of trope it. Sure. But there's no character. There's no interaction, no development. And you mentioned Jamie Lee Curtis like, man. Hey, I'm hitchhiking. Okay, now apparently we slept together. Now apparently I'm just clinging to you. I know nothing about her other than that she wants to go to Vancouver and uh, she makes art. So you're, you're telling me that's information. I'm telling you that's not information. That's the very broadest strokes you could give me. I mean, she also talks about how she came from this rich background and she's not been able to find herself and that's what she's doing. I mean, I don't need a really long character drama between these people. I want to see the fog kill people like that's what the movie's about well and again like i said the fog killing people wasn't that um you know didn't really kick that into overdrive for me but you know if you look at like we grew up with scream right i felt like yeah. that's an ensemble cast and you knew way more about those characters and that's a very different kind of movie that's this kind of hip self-aware uh, you know meta commentary stuff and and those characters all also are broad strokes in a lot of ways that you learn enough to have some investment in what's going on. I mean, and that's a movie that has a bunch of sequels where you learn more about those characters over time. But just in the first movie, I feel like there's maybe just a little more than this. And this is a very different kind of thing. It's, again, it's a campfire story. Those kind of stories have no character development, you know? And this has more than that. Well, I love, you know, ensemble films. As you know, I try to write a good amount of them. I just did, there was no reason for me to invest in any character you know, like, except to say, like, oh, Hal Holbrook, I like him. You know, Janet Lee, what what is her character? I mean, she's very invested in the town, and she's also upset that her husband has died because he was. Wow. <laughs> what a like, character. What do, you want? what do you want? These are <laughs> these are emotions that the characters are having. I'm not sure. What else do you want? She's upset that her husband died. Oh, my goodness. So. I think I think the thing is you have to either accept this movie on its terms, the whole campfire thing or not, because, you know, right. what she is, she's this lady well, who's a widow. That's right. like, like, again, you know? that, you know, and, you know, you research the film and it's like, hey, they 
weren't happy with the product. So they brought in John Houseman and they did that first scene with the campfire that you guys are talking about. Right. But then I'm like, okay, I never see any of these kids again. I never well, see John House. You see the Stevie one, Wayne's right, kid. That's the right? one kid you see again. You never see John Houseman again. I'm like, why is this guy talking to all these kids in the middle of the night? Like, what is going on here? I, I needed something more for that. Yeah, I just feel like you're you're looking for a completely different kind of movie than, than what this is. And and that's fair. This is the kind of movie that didn't work for you. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, like, you know, I, I was like, all right, act one and two. Cool, cool. We're moving along. And then I thought like it would ratchet up in act three and it ratcheted down for me. But I think that's probably because I didn't care about the characters and the, the kills were pretty boring. All right. Well, uh, you know, you're you're. Look, most of the critics are with you. I did I did find one more positive review, although it's kind of a lot of backhanded compliments. Um, this is Richard Corliss in McLean's, who said, The Fog is a fine, funny, scary ghost story that's sure to disappoint a lot of people who judge movies by how much sense the plot makes and how close the acting is to the old Vic. Following the success of Halloween, Carpenter is sticking to, quote, schlock horror movies, and in doing so, has developed the sleekest, most intelligent visual style to emerge since Martin Scorsese made Mean Streets. What's exciting and sophisticated in Carpenter's movies are not the plots, they're plastic. It's the mastery of ominous tracking shots in Halloween, of the sensuous zoom in his TV movie Someone is Watching Me, of invisible editing in The Fog, all of which creates the mood that belongs to film and no other art. So on the one hand, he's saying he's as good as Scorsese, but on the other hand, he's saying a lot of not very positive things about the other qualities of these films. I mean, he's yeah, obviously a talented filmmaker and, you know, I don't have to say that. I mean, we all know that to be the case. And I just, um, yeah, I had no problem with it from like a technical standpoint. It's a nice looking movie and the fog looks cool. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's a kind of movie, too, that on not a huge budget, he he makes it look bigger than it is. I think part of that, too, is the ensemble cast is that it feels like this larger story because we keep checking in with all of these different characters. It doesn't feel like a small scale production. But I, I mean, I, I think also that that he's sort of being a little too dismissive. I don't think the acting in this movie is bad at all. Even if you're disappointed in the character development, I think the actors are giving everything yeah, they to the characters they have. Totally. I, I didn't agree that it was funny, though. Did you think yeah, there was something funny in there? I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a few like slightly humorous moments, but yeah, I didn't necessarily think it was meant to be uh, meant to be funny. But I do think what he points out that this movie is kind of about a mood, that it's more about that and and the tone and the style than it is about the detailed character development. I felt like there was enough in the characters that I could care about, but I do think that this is a movie that's more just about enveloping you in that spookiness. And if you're not, you don't feel that, then you're not going to like the movie. What, well, well, uh, what was spooky in it? I mean, I think that the, the, the story that opens it and the details that, that Hal Holbrook's character, the priest, learns from the, the secret diary that he finds in the, hidden in the walls in the church where we learn about the background of the founding of the town. I think the fog itself is spooky. And I think the pirates are spooky. I don't think they're scary per se, but I think the way that he leaves them shrouded in shadows almost all the time gives you the ability to kind of project something on them that is spooky. Something something knocking at your door with a hook hand all of a sudden is spooky. But it's the kind of spooky that's from a campfire story. Yeah, I guess I guess that but for me that got undercut when you saw the kills, because they're like so 
wah, wah, flaccid kill. Yeah. Those kills needed a boner pill. I, I mean, I don't think they're, they're definitely not super graphic. They're definitely not like what you would expect from seeing Halloween. But I think they fit with the tone. So I guess we're we're kind of rehashing that. But so, Jason, obviously you had not seen this. And like you said, you've never seen you've never seen any Carpenter movies, uh, not even like Big Trouble in Little China or Starman or any of the more. Yeah, I really like really just blew it with John Carpenter. <laughs> I mean, and, and I totally respect him and. I love what an independent spirit he is and all that he's accomplished, not just as a director, but um, as a creator of stories and, a, of course, as a, a film composer as well. Like, you know, so I got to I got to go back and watch it. And I and I really like the um, impetus for this film. Right. Like every, the inspiration for it. It just didn't come together for me. Yeah, no, that's fair. Dave, uh, you, had you seen this one before? Yeah, I saw it a few years ago for the first time. You know, I, I kind of did a little carpenter marathon around halloween one year yeah do you know what year it was or are you foggy on that oh Oh, because the movie the movie's called the the fog it is that's good so i said are you foggy yeah on that so i i'm a big john carpenter fan although i haven't seen all of his films but i've seen i pretty much i think all of the major ones and like i said halloween is definitely one of my favorites and i think is just possibly the greatest horror film ever and i watched this in 2005 for the first time when the remake was coming out so uh which is (laughs) the acclaimed remake right everyone loves it's a very bad movie but i think that was my uh sort of inspiration for finally watching this i remember loving it at that time and i i liked it a lot this time not quite as much i think but um at that time having seen i think a good amount of carpenter movies but maybe not quite as many and also, I had seen a lot of the 90s Carpenter movies in the theater as a teenager that are very bad. And so this was kind of like, oh, right. He made a lot of really good movies in the 80s before he really fell off after that. So, uh, yeah. So I like this movie. And uh, Jason, not so much. But It's okay. Uh, it's okay. Right. You're not going to like them all, buddy. No, that's fine. Anything if you do else? like them all, like, what's the point? Like, right. I Why mean, would we even know. have a podcast just going, yeah. like, I like every movie? That <laughs> yeah. I love movies. Yeah. I love movies. Yeah. So, who wants hosted, to that podcast? hosted by Josh's mom. Right. <laughs> even my mom sometimes. I know a movie is bad if I take my mom to see it and we come out of it and she's like, that wasn't very good. It's like, whoa, yeah. that movie must have really sucked. <laughs> Classic. So, Anything else on the background of this film you want? Yeah, to Josh, I, I had mentioned the kind of inspiration. I was going to ask you, have you seen any of those films, the uh, British films, uh, either the Trollenberg Terror, or the Crawling Eye or the Master Gunfighter from 1975? Have you seen any of these or Terror Creatures from the Grave? No, I haven't. But I mean, I think I've seen similar kinds of films and you can you can see that Carpenter is going for that again, old fashioned hammer film kind of ghost story thing here. Uh, but I haven't seen any of those specific films that have similar elements, like with ghost pirates or anything like that. Yeah. And you mentioned EC comics, obviously. Yes. Yes. And of course the John Greenleaf Whittier poem, the Palatine, which I shall recite for you now. (laughs) Oh boy. That's what people come to this podcast for is poetry reading. Oh yeah. Um, I, I did want to note, I mean, a couple of uh, sort of relationshipy things. This was the the first and one of the only times that Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis, who are, of course, mother and daughter, uh, worked together on a film. Uh, and this was the first film role for Adrian Barbeau, who at the time was John Carpenter's wife. And she'd done TV, but not not been in any movies. So, Josh, did you think that was a missed opportunity with 
Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis. I would have loved to have had a little more interaction between those two. I guess, but I could imagine, I mean, and I don't know what the backstory is, but I could imagine them saying like, oh, we don't want to, you know, play this up and be cutesy about it. Like, let's just, you know, we're both actors who are cast in these parts and let's just do our jobs kind of thing. So yeah, they definitely didn't. I mean, they don't play mother and daughter and there's very little interaction and there's never any kind of acknowledgement at that time that, that there's a connection between them. So maybe they could have done more, but it doesn't necessarily bother me. Cool. All right. Well, uh, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on The Fog. And we're back here on Awesome Movie Year on KAB Radio, the only smooth jazz movie podcast around. Josh, tell us a little about The Fog. Thank you for that. I feel like Stevie Wayne is not uh, necessarily that. She she has a bit more energy. She doesn't feel like a, a sort of like a quiet storm DJ necessarily. Um, she's uh, she's eager to share the news and happenings with her audience there in uh, Antonio Bay. So uh, look out for the fog and they'll come in and murder you here on KB Radio. <laughs> something like that. Something <laughs> like that. So we are talking about John Carpenter's The Fog in the season finale of our 1980 season. And it was our audience choice episode. So even though Jason didn't really like it, I assume a number of listeners out there are fans. Hey, Josh, let me let me say a few nice things about yeah, this. Yeah, please film, do. Okay? Please because do. It's, I'm not saying it's like. Just it just didn't do it for me. I, no, uh, whatever, that's fine. that happened. happens. First yeah. of all, I love the location. You know these kind of sea shanty towns. I'm a big fan of that. Like you know, blow the man down from a few years ago. Love that. Love that stuff. Great use of location. The lighthouse is a very cool location, and you know she gets on the roof. I wanted it a little more of that because it was shot in so you know close up, maybe because of the budget. But I really think they could have done something there. Um, but the whole town, the the centennial celebration. Um, and as we said, the fog looks cool and the music, you know, that's one of his uh, strongest things is is film composing and and shot composing. So, again, from a technical point of view, big fan, location's great. No problem with the acting, just story wise and uh, kill wise. It just didn't do much for me. Yeah, I love the town of uh, the Antonio Bay. And I feel like they give you a real sense of this, this small California town that's about to celebrate its centennial, which of course, as we learn, it was built on murder. Um, Not just murder, murdering lepers. Murdering rich lepers. It was a very weirdly specific kind of murder that happened. There was a uh, rich guy who was a leper. Blake. Blake, right, wanted to start a leper colony in uh, the area of Antonio Bay and the local townspeople were not having it. They didn't want lepers in their town or near their town. And so the priest spearheaded this effort to uh, cause a shipwreck so that all the lepers died and the rich guy's gold was left for the town to uh, use to to build itself up and and to found itself. And a hundred years later, the ghosts of these lepers have returned to take their revenge. And Josh, in the research I read that around this time, the there was a novel that kind of uh, spoke to the fog in the background by Dennis Etchison. Very famous novelist, Dennis Etchison. Sure. Um, I don't know who he is. But anyway, one thing that was in there is it was made clear that the six must die had to be descendants of the conspirators who murdered Blake and his crew. And I felt like had they kind of said like, oh, you know, uh, the father 
and Janet Lee and the Nick character. Like, had we had that as background and now we know that they're fighting, you know, for that extra level, I think that would have really gone a long way. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that that might have helped. It does seem sort of arbitrary who they kill. I mean, they start out by killing these three guys on this boat that's out on the water one night. And we never know really if these people are related in any way to the original conspirators. One of them is Janet Lee's husband. And then they seem to just kind of come into town and kill whoever they can find. They kill the weather guy. And there's no sense of whether he's related. And it's not till the very end of the movie, really, with Hal Holbrook's character, who's the local priest, and he's a descendant of the priest who initially planned this whole massacre and finds the diary and learns about it. And like the literal very, very, very end of the movie is him saying, wait, only five were killed. Why not me? And then they're like, oh, right. Yeah, we got to kill you, too. And they kill him. And that's the only one that has that real connection. Yeah. And also the thing with that is like, I know that's like a horror trope. It's like, hey, we save the day. And the last shot is like hand coming from grave monster coming out of closet, whatever. Sure. But I thought they did a fine job of like establishing, hey, we've we've fixed this problem. So then for the the all the pirates to come back exactly the same, like two minutes later, the next day, like I just felt like that deflated it even more for me. Oh, see, I like, I mean, that is a very familiar kind of horror ending where you have that little stinger at the end, like, oh, we've saved the day. Wait, wait, maybe we didn't. But I felt like it wasn't just that. It was the whole buildup for that whole movie. The whole point of Hal Holbrook's character is discovering this horrific thing that his grandfather did and learning about the past of Antonio Bay and realizing what the ghosts are there for and how we have to atone. And he almost wants to get killed. He feels so bad about what's happened. Right. But he did atone. He gave him the gold back. He talked about how horrible his grandfather was and how the town is built on a lie. So I thought like his character had that arc where it was like, okay, you can let him go. Maybe it's like, you know, I get it. Like they decapitate him at the end, but maybe it would have just been like, you know, if they had done something a little more subtle, it's like, why not me? You know, and we had seen like him look out and you see the ghost ship or something a little more subtle. I, I felt like that would have been more effective. And you know what, John Carpenter? That's right. I'm telling you how to make. No, I'm just kidding. But just for me, it wasn't. wasn't. Yeah. I mean, all right. I I feel like that is one effective moment. And that that is that whole arc of that character does what you were saying is sort of missing with the other characters where he has this clear connection. You learn more about him and why he's in such anguish about what's happened. Um, And I do love the ridiculousness of like, the old diary that's like been in the church for a hundred years behind a brick that he finds. I mean, it's such a silly ghost story thing and the way he's reading it. And it's such a movie thing too, where as he's reading it, he reads like two words and then turns a page and like each page only has two words written on it. Uh, Anyway, that's, that's just sort of just a silly movie thing. But I felt like all of that combined for this sort of like old fashioned EC comics kind of tone to the, to the thing. Josh, uh, you know, we didn't see much of the father's assistant, Bennett, after his first scene. And that was the cameo by John Carpenter, uncredited. Oh, yeah. Lots of lots of sort of references here. A lot of the characters in this movie are named after people John Carpenter worked yeah. with, like uh, Nick Castle and uh, Tommy Wallace, Dan O'Bannon, including uh, Tommy Wallace worked on this movie even uh, as a production designer, I think, an editor. 
So, you know, fun, fun little references. It definitely feels like a movie that, that Carpenter is having fun with and is referencing old school horror and referencing his friends and whatever and, and, and kind of having a good time. Yeah, I just think like, hey, man, it's the centennial. We're, we should call it Founders Day and talk about the six founders and revere them. And then we see that like how the family tree comes down. And oh, now we know that the murder is going to be someone related to the founders. And does that pit family members against each other? Do they work together? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think there was a lot more, a lot of meat left on the bone here. I mean, we could have done that. I feel like that's a different, different kind of movie. And, you know, he obviously wants to have characters like Stevie Wayne and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character who are outsiders. I mean, Stevie Wayne lives in the town now, but she's obviously come fairly recently to buy the radio station and take it over. She wouldn't be a descendant of uh, any of the founders. And Jamie Lee Curtis is just hitchhiking in. And and I, I like that, too. I did like that mix of people like Janet Lee or Hal Holbrook's character who are clearly like tied to the town and have this sort of pride in it and have lived there for a really, really long time. And then Stevie Wayne and Jamie Lee Curtis, who just are coming in, they're passing through or they show up and they they kind of are taken by the charms of it. I mean, even though Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, she shows up and gets a ride from Tom Atkins and immediately like all the windows in his truck shatter mysteriously. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to stay in this town. This seems like a cool place to hang out. Well, not just that. That happens and then, the, then they bang. Like that's right. literally the next scene. Like, oh, you picked me up. Okay, cool. I'm a hitchhiker. Let's bang. Like what? You know, it was a little, it was a little wacky there. But um, as far as the town itself, it did make me want to be like, oh, I should drive to Northern California and go check out some of these fun beach towns. You know, right. Sea, yeah. Sea, sea towns. It definitely had that feel. At one point they referenced Bodega Bay, which is, which is a real town, but is, is probably most famous for being the setting of the birds. And that has kind of a similar feel. And I, I, you know, again, I feel like that's another movie that maybe Carpenter is trying to evoke here where it's got this natural phenomenon that seems completely harmless that is now deadly and people have to run away from or whatever. I mean, I love the sequence of Stevie Wayne on the, on the radio kind of narrating, now the fog is here, now the fog is here and they have to outrun the fog. I mean, if you think about it for two seconds, it's like, how absurd is it that they're trying to outrun fog? But it works. It's like suspenseful and creepy. Dave, what do you think? I mean, I think it's great. Mainly, you know, I, I don't want it to sound like a cop out, but like taking this movie, like I said, for what it's supposed to be, which is that kind of campfire vibe of just like a silly ghost story that you tell kids, like, you know, Josh said earlier, you know, kind of maybe for kids, like a first horror movie or something like that. It's just, it is what the movie is and all of it from the, you know, like you said, the cinematography to the score, to the performances, all of it just adds up to just really capturing that vibe of like just a silly, spooky story that someone's telling you. Yeah. I think the vibe is really the key thing. And, and Jason, you know, you're not wrong about some of your criticisms of the plot and the no. way that it might fit together more uh, effectively. But I think it's really, it's really about the vibe. And like I keep saying, you know, if you're not, if you don't watch that first scene and think I'm all on board, then this isn't going to work for you. What movie of this kind of campfire ilk would you say if this one I didn't go for would be one that I would go for? I mean, I don't know. I think this is a really good example of that. I mean, you know, the creep show movies we keep talking about definitely have a similar kind of vibe, but I don't, I don't see you being into those movies really at all. Um, 
or uh, I don't know, they're more recently like scary stories to tell in the dark, um, which, eh, you know, was kind of up and down on that. Or really, honestly, like the Goosebumps movie. I feel like the Goosebumps movie is very influenced by something like this. It's more kid friendly, but it's the same kind of vibe. The the sort of silly stories that, you know, are are come to life kind of thing. So I don't know if you maybe if you've seen that with your daughter, maybe, but I feel like this is maybe just not a genre for you. You ever sit around a campfire, Josh? Maybe. Tell scary stories. I'm Make not some a, wars. I'm not a I'm not a outdoor person. So uh <laughs> I mean maybe when I was in in summer camp we we did that. I don't recall doing a lot of like scary storytelling, but I did love reading scary stories to tell in the dark, the books as a kid, which are very much like collections of campfire stories and urban legends. And I, I loved those. I used to like campfires, but now it just sounds very uncomfortable. I'd need to bring like a beach chair with me. Yeah. Like. Yeah. All that dirt and rocks yeah, and logs. You know, right. Rugs. Exactly. It's yeah. no good. It's no good, but it's, a we good should be eating s'mores during this episode. Maybe we, we should. should. I don't think they actually eat any s'mores in the movie, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's maybe not an experience we're going to have, but it's, it's certainly a, a mood that this movie evokes. Josh, you know, one of my criticisms, like I said, were the 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 kills were just so wimpy. Um, tell me, tell me why I'm wrong. Well, I mean, I think I think you're wrong in the sense that I wouldn't describe them as wimpy, but I don't think you're wrong in the sense that they're not graphic. They're not intense. I think they're not meant to be. Um, I think that is one of the things that they maybe tweaked a bit in those reshoots that they made them a little more intense. There's at least one scene where you actually see a close up on one of the ghost pirates faces and it's all melty and it's got like worms and stuff. I feel like that wasn't even really necessary. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in these, in these sort of campfire stories or urban legends, it's all about the buildup. It's the man with the hook hand and he knocked once <gasps> and he knocked again. <gasps> and you know, that's what it's all about. What happened? What happened? Right. Right. And then, and then, Josh, tell us the ending of that story. Right, right. I agree with Josh, like completely. It's all about the buildup because in those stories, it's like, and then he got murdered. Like, you know, like that's it. Like there's, you don't actually see it. Like you don't get, you don't get the whole thing. And yeah. Right. I mean, right, honestly, but... if you, if you watch, if you watch the creep show movies or you read EC comics, many of those endings could be accompanied with that sound effect. And that's like on purpose, but <laughs> you know, I don't think, I think this movie doesn't go full on cheesiness in terms of like what the creep show movies do. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the, the comeuppance with the whole, the founding of the town and whatever. And yeah, the buildup, the point isn't like, let's like have a graphic depiction of a kill. It's like, what happened? Did, was he at the door? And sometimes the end of the story is like what we see early in the movie where Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis have just slept together and the ghost knocks at their door and he, by the time he gets there, the ghost is gone. And so that's the story. He knocked once. Oh my God. He knocked again. Oh my God. And then they opened the door and there was nothing there. And that's the story. Josh, you have a good voice for that. You should do some audio narration on these uh, campfires. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I'll, do, I'll do the audio book of scary stories to tell in the dark or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I think this is, uh, this is the tone that Carpenter is capturing very well here that, you know, not to repeat myself, but that obviously Jason, it just wasn't, it wasn't for you. So, so as a neophyte to John Carpenter, where do you rank this out of the Carpenter movies you've seen? I mean, I, I still rank this very pretty high. I think I didn't like it quite as much. Uh, like I said, as the first time, I think you, you know, you talk about Halloween, of course, and the thing, 
Um, I mean, those are probably both both from the 80s. Um, those are probably his best films and both horror films. I, I like Escape from New York a lot. Um, I actually really love his version of Christine, the Stephen King story, which is gets kind of mixed response. All of those from this period in the 80s where he was just like constantly on fire. So I might rank it, rank it below those few. But I mean, I don't know if that's the top five or top six. But if I was telling someone like, here's a list of John Carpenter movies to check out, I would put this on here because it has a sort of a unique place. It's it's doing a particular thing that I think it's doing well and that he doesn't really do in any of his other movies. And Dave, what about you? Where do you put it? Probably top five. The Thing would be my number one. Um, I love They Live. They Live is awesome. I actually am in the minority on Halloween. I don't really like Halloween that much. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Nerd so. fight. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I've always thought that Halloween would have been a great title for The Fog because it feels like just that kind of silly spooky rather than actually scary. You know? It is. It is. And you know what, Jason, you know what, what another movie that we've talked about on this podcast that really tries to get this tone is trick or treat. Mm-hmm. That's, what, know, that's what I thought the yeah. whole time, but go on. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, and I know we weren't generally that enthused about that movie, but that it has a big cult following. I thought that evoked, um, cause I did think about that. I thought that captured it better in, in, a, in some of those segments than this did. All right. Well, that's fair. So uh, should we give this a rating out of uh, five ghost pirates? <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, it gets two and a half ghost pirates for me, as I've said. Eh, totally uh, capably and expertly crafted. Just uh, just didn't raise the roof for me. Just uh, yeah. the fog didn't come rolling in on me. No, mm. the fog stayed back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give it three and a half. And I think I might have rated it four when I first saw it. And maybe it didn't grab me quite as much this time. But I do really enjoy this film. And I do think it's one of Carpenter's best. So, Dave? Uh, I'm going to four. Um, I might be overrating it a tad, but it's just, it's so much fun that I, uh, I'm going to stick with it. Are you trying to overcompensate because of my rating, Dave? (laughs) No. Not at all. It's still got the score. I mean, I, I could give it four for the score alone. Yeah, know? the score is fantastic. We've mentioned just briefly, but Carpenter, obviously a great composer in addition to a filmmaker. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of The Fog. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this season finale of our season on the films of 1980. We are talking about the audience choice winner, The Fog. And uh, and thank you again to everyone who voted. There was obviously a good amount of enthusiasm for The Fog. So hopefully people have been uh, somewhat interested. Oh, they're going to be upset with me, Josh. I mean, I feel like you've made a lot of reasonable criticisms. You're not just trashing this film. I think a lot of what you've said is fair. Do you want to know a scene that I thought was really great? Sure. Was when the boy uh, finds that wood that says Dane, which is the ship name Elizabeth Dane. Right. And for and Stevie Wayne just decides to carry it around everywhere like it's show and tell. Um, but then she goes to the radio station and it, and it turns right and it says uh, six must die. Right. Right. And then the voice on the recordings that she's listened to, which is just promos for smooth dabs, becomes like the ghost pirate saying we must kill them all. And like I thought that was a very effective, scary scene. Yeah, that's a really cool scene. And suddenly there's a seawater coming from it that that drenches her tapes and then it catches on fire. And uh, yeah, that's a cool, it's a cool spooky scene. Yeah, I wanted more like that. Yeah, and then they just, she just kind of leaves the driftwood there, I guess. It doesn't really come up again. 
Plus, we yeah. put it out with a fire extinguisher. Right. What else is there to do with it? But that's what I mean. Like you, like you're saying, like they bring stuff up, and then it's like, oh, I guess we're done with that. We don't. Yeah, really get no, I suppose that's true. So uh, we're talking about the legacy of the fog, and I mean, we mentioned a bit Carpenter's subsequent career. I mean, in the '80s, it was just amazing, and even though a lot of those films weren't huge commercial hits. They've all become really acknowledged genre classics from The Fog to Escape from New York, The Thing, They Live, Starman, Christine, Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, it's 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 an amazing run and all kind of genre movies, but in, in a lot of different approaches, not just horror movies, but action and science fiction and a lot of different kind of stuff. So uh, he definitely fell off in the 90s. Like I said, I, I remember seeing stuff like Vampires in the theater, which was not good. Although I did enjoy at the time, like uh, Ghosts from Mars. Madness. I've never seen Ghosts from Mars. Well, a lot of people like In the Mouth of Madness. So I think that one right. is well regarded. Too. Yeah, that was one of the only later ones that, that got some decent response. Um, and then he just kind of moved away from it. He maybe wasn't getting the budgets that he wanted. He wasn't getting the success he wanted. The last movie he made was in 2010 called The Ward, which was very poorly reviewed and I never saw. Um, but he's really like in the last several years kind of come into this not second career because he was always a composer and he does the music for most of his own films but as a composer sort of separately from being a filmmaker has be had this big resurgence going on tour releasing yeah. albums all this stuff dave have you seen him live i sure have yeah oh was, nice it was, How was that? it was awesome yeah at the, at the hard rock um he played like stuff from the fog but everything from all these classic scores it was great so when he's doing that is the is there like a background screen to match the uh -huh. scenes yeah yeah cool. yep they're, they're showing the scenes and it's him and his son plays with them and yeah I mean, these scores just sound so cool and yeah that sounds awesome yeah, yeah it sounds great, great. It, it's great especially because they're so like minimalist a lot of the times and he doesn't he's just standing there boom just hitting that one key and just you know letting it ride out you know <laughs> you know josh i was thinking the other thing about carpenter obviously we know the Halloween resurgence, but literally like all of his movies seem to be either remade or ready to be remade. He's just booming as far as like an intellectual property guy. Right. They did, as we said, remake the fog in 2005, which is very, very bad with, uh, it's a very quintessential, like early two thousands remake with Tom Welling and Maggie Grace, you know, just like two people who happened to be on popular TV shows at the time. And, um, but there was also, yeah, I mean, there's there's all these Halloween sequels that David Gordon Green has made that Carpenter is involved with recently that he's composed music for. There was a sort of remake slash prequel to The Thing, which I think is actually kind of an underrated movie with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, I feel like there's probably going to be a new Christine movie just because um, that's a Stephen King property and everything Stephen King is being redone. Um, but you're right. All of his other stuff, you could absolutely see. They already that. redid Assault on Precinct 13 as well. Yes, yeah. yes they yeah. did. I think They Live is ripe for a uh, remake any day now, it seems like. Yeah, and I think there's been talks about a sequel or remake of Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, there's there's tons of possibilities there. But, but Carpenter seems like even as he's gotten involved with movies again, like composing music for the those Halloween movies, or he composed the score for the new crappy version of Firestarter. Mm. He doesn't seem to have much interest in directing a movie anymore. Maybe, you know, I mean, he's directed plenty of movies, right? Sure. And like you said, he's on tour. Dave is saying he's touring with his kid. He's like a rock star now. He can just <laughs> chill. He can do that. He can do like horror conventions and just like enjoy the sunset, right? 
Right. And he's put out, I mean, not only has he composed scores for new movies, but he's put out albums just of instrumental music that are not tied to any film. So he, he definitely seems like he's doing exactly what he wants to do, which I mean, he should be able to at this point. Right. Yeah. Which supposedly includes being a big gamer. Eh, good yeah. for him. You know, <laughs> yeah. enjoy those video games. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Adrian Barbeau, as as we said, she was married to John Carpenter at this time, um, but you know that didn't did <laughs> that didn't last very long. But she's had a long career, mostly in kind of B movies. She's definitely known as a horror movie genre movie kind of actor. She's done a lot of TV uh, and a lot of voice acting. I think most notably as Catwoman on the Batman animated series. She played Maud's daughter in Maud. There you go. That was, I think, earlier before yeah. this, but before she had leaped to TV, but is still working. Swamp Thing's probably the biggest thing that she's known for, I'd say. Yeah. In the 80s, she did that. She was Swamp Thing's love interest, I think. Ooh, um, spicy. And uh, I always remember a great uh, kind of Swampy. movie that, on, she, that she was in called Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death. Yeah. Was it Bill Maher in that movie? Bill yeah. Maher and Shannon Tweed. It's like this ridiculous B movie that's actually quite clever and funny and I'm always recommending it to people. Um, so that movie, uh, formative experience for me. She wrote, uh, well, I don't want to know any more about that. Uh, <laughs> she wrote four books and after, uh, John Carpenter, she married Billy Van Zant, brother of E street band guitarist, uh, Steven Panza. Man, we got a Springsteen <laughs> reference in here somehow. Wow. That is amazing. No, I, hey, man, it's that's who she married. I didn't make him get married, Josh. This is totally, totally know, arranged marriage. Right. No, totally. Jamie Lee Curtis, I mean, she's a huge, huge star. We could run. Still doing her. great. Still doing yes. great, right? She's yes. got two Golden Globes and a BAFTA. Uh, we loved her in everything, everywhere, all at once this year. Coming up, uh, you know, Halloween ends. She's in the Borderlands movie. And the one I wanted to mention was, remember that sitcom she was on with Richard Lewis, Anything But Love? I bet that would be worth rewatching at this point in time. I know. Did you watch it when it was originally on? Yeah, but I was like 10 or something. I didn't think I got it. But, I, you know, that was a four season sitcom. I bet it was a pretty smart show. And everything. Yeah, maybe. I never I never saw it. But, yeah, she's done everything from TV to films. I mean, she started out between this and Halloween and then prom night and Halloween, too. She was really like this kind of scream queen early in her career, but she's, you know, expanded in, in so many ways. And she seems to genuinely love that Halloween franchise and love doing those Halloween movies, even though the last one was not very good. You know, uh, and married to Christopher Guest, who we've talked about here yes, a lot. Yeah. But, you know, one thing I like about Jamie Lee Curtis is um, she has no, you know, kind of false expectations or fronts about looking younger than she is or like trying to Hollywood herself up. She is very comfortable with how she's aging and she's playing that really well in these movies. And I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. And she's a big enough star and she has enough clout that she can still get cast in things, you know, uh, whereas uh, a lot of actors probably less famous than her have trouble with that. But she's, you know, she's using that clout for, for a good purpose. Yeah. And uh, have they announced, is it True Lies? Is that being remade or turned into a television show or something? I'm sure yeah. we'll see her there. Yeah, it is. I don't think she's involved, although maybe she'll do a cameo right, or something. But right. it, yeah, it is gotten it has gotten picked up as a TV show. That's a fun. That's a fun movie. Yeah, that's uh, a great movie. I like yeah, um, Janet Lee, who of course is Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. I mean, before this, she was a screen legend. I mean, Psycho, Touch of Evil, Manchurian Candidate, Little Women. I mean, you know, going back to the 1940s. Yeah, the let you know her her career after this was mostly just kind of smaller TV roles. 
She did uh, appear once again with Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween H2O, which was the uh, previous uh, attempt at sort of rebooting the Halloween franchise by bringing Jamie Lee Curtis back that didn't really have the level of success of the more recent ones. Was that Rob Zombie? No, no. The Rob Zombie one was a remake, um, but that Halloween H2O was like the most recent ones where Jamie Lee Curtis returns as the older version of her character. Um, and so Janet Lee had a, had a sort of a small appearance in that film. So kind of a nice little mother daughter thing in there. Also and, wrote four books, man, you know, I'm sure there's, she's got some really great Hollywood stories in those. Books. Yeah. Golden Globe for psycho, you know, one of the most iconic, uh, film roles of all time. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, she passed away in 2004. Tom Atkins was definitely a, uh, John Carpenter favorite appeared in escape from New York. He's the, the star of Halloween three. Which have you seen Halloween three, Dave? No, I, I know it. It's like its own thing, right? It's like a totally different story. Yeah, and and Tom Atkins. You think Tom Atkins uh, gets laid in this movie? Man, does Tom <laughs> Atkins get laid in Halloween three? Sometimes it seems like that's the plot of Halloween three. Um, but which was uh, which was also, of course, directed by Tommy Wallace, who is another uh, John Carpenter associate. Um, and Tom Atkins still works in, in kind of small scale films and TV work and whatever is still, still a busy guy. Then I was going to move on to Hal Holbrook, who, uh, I love, you know, and who, who, how could you not love Hal Holbrook? You know, American treasure, his play, Mark Twain tonight, won him a Tony award and he performed it live for almost six decades. I think that's incredible. Amazing. You know, yeah. um, five Emmys, an Oscar nod for um, Into the into the Wild, which he's so good in. I remember just like, he's the highlight of that movie. And then, of course, just classics, All the President's Men, Wall Street. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, he's just uh, you know, the firm men of honor. I'm not calling them classics, but he's a big time, uh, one of the great actors out there. Yeah, yeah. and he kept, he kept working almost all the way until the end of his life. He died last year at age 95 and, you know, a lot of times in these, these supporting roles. But he had a movie in 2009 called That Evening Sun that I remember reviewing that was a rare, like, lead role for him that was really good um, where, you know, it definitely took advantage of his kind of elder statesman status playing this older character reflecting on his life. And that, that's a... That's, I remember, I don't remember a lot of details about it, but I think I had it on my like top 10 list that year. And it was a really like nice small scale drama. I'll have to check it out. Of course, another classic actor, John Houseman, who I don't know if I sound like I have not really studied his voice, but I do remember Alec Berg is a good John Houseman name from Seinfeld. And uh, if you research John Houseman, it is fascinating because of his collaboration and his uh, subsequent uh, headbutting with Orson Welles, all the stuff he did to kind of build modern theater in America in the 1930s and 40s. And um, just he is a, as big of an actor as he is. He's probably an even bigger producer. He was like, you know, uh, head of development in movie studios. And he won an Oscar for The Paper Chase. Uh, just rollerball three days of the condor, just very. And of course, Ricky Schroeder's grandfather on silver spoons. But um, yeah, what an interesting, interesting man that guy was. Yeah. And, you know, he comes in and he's just in this movie for a short time, but he adds that presence and that gravitas that, you know, like only someone like that can really add to, to introduce this film. Yes. I, I got to hear him speak. I don't know. Yeah. No, that was so. Um, and the only other other person I wanted to mention is Deborah Hill, who is the co-writer on this with John Carpenter. 
and uh, producer. And she worked with John Carpenter on a lot of his films, including these these early ones. And she was really instrumental in his career taking off and worked as a producer on a few on other films as well. And uh, she died in 2005. But I mean, I, I, Carpenter, I think, w- would say that, you know, he wouldn't have had a career if it weren't for Deborah Hill. So an important sort of unsung person on this film. You know, one thing I was reading is in the 90s, John Carpenter was pitching an anthology, which I think could be done today about the fog. But it wasn't about the fog. It was how the fog was leading into other supernatural stories that tied together. And I really think that could be interesting. Yeah, that could be something. And you're right. I think that could be something that's absolutely done today. You know, John Carpenter presents the fog and gets some, you know, younger, newer horror filmmakers to work on little standalone stories. And I, I could totally see that being on Netflix yeah. or something. And then also if it leads into other supernatural stories, it could be like John Carpenter presents the fog presents tornado. John <laughs> <laughs> Carpenter's Sharknado. All right. <laughs> Anything else you want to add on the legacy of this film, Jason? No, uh, always down to watch these, whether they're for me or not. It's always good to check them out. So happy to do it. And uh, thank you for all the votes. Yes. Thanks again to everyone who voted. We always appreciate your participation and uh, hope you appreciate this episode. So that is The Fog. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out on social media where you voted. Yes, you did vote on social media, uh, likely uh, not on our website, awesomemovieyear.com, which is totally adequate. Uh, you can find us on any of the social medias at Awesome Movie Year or Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all those socials. And of course, my website, Go For Jason, uh, is wrecked on the beach somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> uh, my website, joshbellhateseverything.com goes back so far that you can read a little blurb that I wrote in 2005 about the fog. It's not very interesting, but it's there. <laughs> um, you can find me at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And since my music is so heavily influenced by John Carpenter, I'll give it a little plug. Check out bydavidrosen.com. Yeah, do that. And Dave, of course, is also a film composer who may someday get to work on a film as great as The Fog. We can uh, yeah. Great. So what he's saying is all the ones you've already worked on are garbage. Are not uh, not like horror <laughs> classics. Jason know. directed one of the films I worked on. Josh Carrope that movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's not as good as The Fog. I am confident in saying it's not as good as The Fog. I'm going to fight you on that one. All right. Well, uh, also the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces Facebook group, which was another place where people voted for this. So uh, check that out if you want to vote in our future audience choice polls and participate in some cool movie discussions with all of us and other movie fans. And uh, what is in our next episode, Jason? Josh, we're going to do the epilogue, talk about films that we considered didn't get to uh, or perhaps missed in 1980. And in that epilogue, as per the norm, we will reveal what year we are going to cover in our next season, season 12 of Awesome Movie Year. So tune in next time for that 1980 epilogue. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.